Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You've tuned in to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, rewilding and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available via 3CR and the Freedom of Species website. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Firstly, on behalf of the Freedom of Species, the FOS radio team, I'd like to thank everyone out there for donating towards the Freedom of Species Radiothon. I don't think I could say in words a more heartfelt thank you. I mean, I could try, but I'd waffle on for hours and it would be very boring. Thank you so much and please... Please honour your pledges by calling 3CR on 03 area code 94198377. That's 94198377 or indeed during business hours Monday through Friday if you, could, you can pop into the station, 21 Smith Street, Collingwood. Today on the show, first up, we speak with Anne Lloyd-Jones, who is the Australian Director of the Animals Asia Foundation, who works with many organisations, I think about 130 that are Chinese animal activist organisations. And we talk about the Yulin Dog Meat Eating Festival in regards to the international comment that it received this year. Later on in the show, I will be chatting with Paul Marnie. Paul is a well-respected environmental and animal rights activist who has a blog called Terrastendo. Terrastendo is a great blog. If you want to really cut through a lot of the confusion and misinformation about combating climate change, then I highly recommend having a look at that one. A recent article caught my eye. Fairfax Media, uh, the headline was, if you were spending $100 to combat climate change, and it gave you a shopping list and one of the items was just swap beef for chicken. So I asked Paul, is that indeed enough? And hanging around the studio at the time were the guys that have started a recent campaign called Less Meat, Less Heat. So I asked for their comments on that one as well. My name is Anne Lloyd-Jones and I'm the Australian Director of Animals Asia Foundation. 
Thank you so much for making time for the program today, Anne. Tell us about the role that Animals Asia has within China. Sure. Animals Asia Foundation is an animal welfare charity that's been operating in Asia with our main focus in China since 1998. We work with a large number of small groups, small independent animal welfare groups, to try and change legislation to raise awareness about the issues and, of course, to rescue bears from the horrible bile farms across China. Something that is not often portrayed in the Western media, and I think unfortunately, is that Animals Asia and other Western-founded uh, organisations work in collaboration with many Chinese activists themselves. Um, and I make this note because, unfortunately, I think this portrays an under- undercurrent that, you know, uh, animal welfare and compassion is almost like a, a a Western ideal. You know, it's something that we impose on them. Is that something that you want to comment on? Absolutely. Our head office is in Hong Kong, but we employ over 200 staff in China that work at our Bear Rescue Centre. And we also have a team of Chinese people who work on the cat and dog issue. And we work with 130 local Chinese groups. So there's a huge number of animal welfare people in China, individuals that care about animals, and they want to see change as much as we do and see legislation introduced that protects the animals. Can you tell us what the Yulin Dog Eating Festival is? It's a festival that happens once a year around the summer solstice, which is the 21st or 22nd of June. And it's where in the city of Yulin, People come together to eat dog meat and wash it down with lychee wine. The festival was only started about five years ago by people that were eating dog meat, enjoyed dog meat, and also by unscrupulous dog traders that wanted to make money. And at the height of the festival, 10,000 dogs were killed over the period of days the festival ran. We're talking about the festival which just finished Monday, is that right? Or is it just started? That's right. Yes, no, it's just finished. So there has been different reports over running Sunday, Monday. So last year, the festival organisers actually started the festival early because of the international spotlight that's been put on the activities. So their effort to actually dodge the, uh, the attention was to run a little bit early. But this year, it's gone ahead, we've heard. What animal protection law is there in China... And does any of the legislation cover a festival such as this? There is no animal welfare law in China. There are laws that protect wildlife and there are laws that protect farm animals. But in the situation of Yulin, the only legislation that is there that controls a festival like that is actual quarantine laws and transporting of the dogs. There is nothing there to actually protect their welfare and their treatment. So basically any legislation that deals with animal protection in China deals with livestock and could I am I correct in assuming it's around uh, more a hygienic kind of basis about the quality of the meat rather than the actual welfare of the of the livestock that's right it's predominantly just to ensure that there's no spread of disease that the animals have actually been inspected that they don't carry disease and they have been correctly quarantined mm-hmm. and the facilities are kept clean so that's the legislation that does exist of course what goes on is quite different and in the situation of Yulin we're finding the majority of, of the dogs are slaughtered at restaurants and markets not in government endorsed slaughterhouses. Can you tell us where these dogs come from? 
Well, sadly, the situation in Yulin is that, well, across China, it has certainly been discovered that it is almost impossible to farm dogs on a large scale. So what people are doing now, and one of the main reasons we're really against this festival, is that almost all of the dogs are stolen pets or, or strays off the street. So it's too expensive and too difficult to farm dogs. So people are just going along. There's gangs of, of men on motorbikes and with trucks, and they're, they're stealing dogs off the street, out of people's front yards. They're threatening the dog owners, and that's where the dogs are coming from. It's stolen pets, many still wearing their collars. Wow. So it really is an illegal trade. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is a reason we really want the government to get more involved and to step in. And although the government in Yulin do not endorse this festival, because of the breaches of the way that the dogs are kept, the way they're transported and the fact that they're stolen, uh, it's a festival really needs to be shut down. It's wrong on so many levels. Even if you're someone that believes that the Chinese have the right to eat dogs, Yulin is certainly just a situation that highlights everything that's wrong with this industry and why it needs to stop. It does highlight dog eating in general in China. Can you comment on that? Does one assume then that all dogs eaten in China are stolen dogs? Not all of them are stolen in China. Uh, What happens is rather than having these large dog farms that used to exist, what will happen is the people that are trading in dogs will actually they call it raising, raising by peasant families. So they will give a litter of puppies to a family to raise for, say, six months, and then they will buy it back, and then they will let those dogs will end up at a market or a restaurant. So that's happening more often, but 130 million dogs across China, and a lot of them are strays. There's still a situation where a lot of dogs aren't being sterilised, and so litters of puppies are being born, and those dogs are being picked up off the streets and sent to market. So other than the obvious, you know, welfare concerns for a a sentient being being slaughtered for meat, there is a a disease element to this, isn't there? Can you tell us a bit about the, you know, rabies concerns? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you, Lynn, is a very high incidence of rabies. So even if you're not concerned about the welfare of the animals, if you're consuming meat from dogs that have been killed at this festival, uh, many of these dogs, we believe, are infected with diseases. They're not vaccinated, which is another reason why the farms have shut down. The cost to actually maintain these animals at a decent standard of health. Uh, so these dogs are infected with parvovirus, temper and rabies. And the dogs that are being taken off the street, some of them are also being poisoned with cyanide. So the, the end user can be consuming cyanide. And cyanide is basically just to kill them so they can eat the meat? Yes, to kill them, to catch them. Yeah, okay. so you use a... Uh, crossbow uh, that's poisoned with cyanide and that's one way of capturing dogs off the street. It has triggered so much international comment and, you know, most of it for me has been it's so hard for Western cultures but also for apparently, and what I quote from The Economist, for the growing middle class in China to equate the cute pooch they have on the end of their leash to being on a skewer. Can you comment on that kind of uh, rhetoric around it, like it's almost a, a Western influence or a middle-class evolution? Sure. Well, it used to be very frowned upon to keep pet dogs in China, uh, but now I think with the change in the way the country is governed, in the fact that the one-child policy, people are keeping dogs as companions and they really, really a 
adore their dogs. There is a huge industry in China for pet care products that you know extends to everything from designer dogs and doggy coats, and they have dog shows. I mean, you can really see that people are adoring their dogs. So that has started to really widen this gap between people that feel that eating dog is something that that culturally you do, and having dogs should be uh, only well, people love their pets. So that has certainly changed things. Uh, within China, but I think also the international pressure. And this year, we've never seen anything like it. Um, and obviously having celebrities like Ricky Gervais get behind a campaign like this is fantastic to raise awareness. But then within China, what we're hearing are reports that the government doesn't want to be seen to be changing what they do because of international pressure. So we need to keep that uh, awareness within China and the really support those activists in China that are calling for change and they're doing an incredible job. You're hearing reports that it's the government where that sentiment's coming from but in your opinion people within China and the activists have they got the same sentiment towards the international pressure? Are they the Chinese activists themselves are they welcoming this international pressure? I think so. I think it's it's good for them to have pressure coming from within the country and outside the country. And although it may not immediately help, I think it's fantastic at raising awareness. And I think you can't, when you see such attention on an issue like this, there is no chance. I think you can all see the writings on the wall that this, this particular festival and, and this industry uh, and what we have uncovered with our reports, Animals Asia has put, down, uh, put out four reports in the last month just showing how bad this industry is, how much blackmail is going on, um, the disease, the theft, um, the, the things, the, the industry is just so rife with so many bad things that, you know, it has to end. It just can't be supported. And hopefully the government will acknowledge that and look at the potential health threats to the humans that are taking part in festivals like this. Are the Chinese animal activists themselves, are they putting themselves in danger by speaking up about this? I think some of them are just personally being threatened. I've heard actually, I read something this morning that one of the CNN reporters was threatened um, by a knife. Um, so I think anyone that steps out there and has, has the guts to stand up with banners and, and call for change. And there was one incredible lady that spent over a thousand pounds buying dogs to save them from the pot. Um, I think all these people are taking risks. I think, again, when there's things going on that is illegal, when there's crime involved, when you've got gangs, that you know, people are, they're putting themselves at risk, but they obviously feel so passionately about saving these dogs that they're willing to do it. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are chatting with Anne Lloyd-Jones, the Australian Director of Animals Asia Foundation, about the Yulin Dog Meat Eating Festival in China that transpired last week. We are chatting about the activity that many Chinese animal advocates have been up to in the last few years in their campaigning against the dog meat trade. For a number of years, there's been reports of social media being used to alert activists to trucks coming in that are smuggling dogs between provinces. So people are actually going out there and intercepting the trucks. They're reporting them to the authorities because these trucks don't have the proper certificates to say that the dogs are disease-free and they've gone through quarantine. So, you know, there's really an incredible movement out there that is making it harder and harder and harder for these traders to continue their business. And, that's, you know, we've seen that the farms close. We're now seeing people get involved in actually stopping the trucks and, and rescuing the dogs. 
And when you start to see a movement like that, you see it build, you know that the next step is that it's got to be shut down. Interesting how it has triggered a whole discussion also on should we be eating dog, you know, we eat cows, we eat pigs, you know, it's also that's almost like a sideline argument, isn't it, to this particular campaign? It is, and it's always something that is raised when you talk about people eating dogs. There is certainly a large number of people that believe it's no different to eating a cow or a sheep. Uh, But one thing that we like to just remind people is that, well, it would be very nice if we stopped eating all animals, of course, that would be the ultimate. Uh, But in this situation, dogs are pack animals, they're carnivorous, they can't be farmed humanely. You can't keep them in, in tight conditions or they will turn on each other and disease spreads quickly. And no country has ever found a humane way of slaughtering a dog. So even the Hong Kong Ag and Fish Department came out recently saying it's just not possible. So there are many reasons uh, why dogs should not be farmed and slaughtered. But we have to remember, too, the amazing service dogs provide to humans. You know, seeing eye dogs, drug detector dogs, you know, they're incredible, important parts of our lives and our families. So, you know, for this industry to be going on and stealing pet dogs, you know, it really is it's quite horrific. Oh, well, thank you very, very much for your time and your work, Anne. Thank you, Emma. Yeah. Lovely to chat to you. your waves out to the sea The city street lights blinding That was a tune by Melody Moon called Birdsong, which wrapped up our chat with Anne Lloyd-Jones, the Australian Director for Animals Asia. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. I'm Simon, I'm from Less Meat, Less Heat. My name's Mark, I'm the founder of Less Meat, Less Heat. What we're trying to do is, well, what we're doing is we're sparking a global movement of people adopting a climatarian diet to avoid catastrophic climate change. Under the understanding that we need to actually act on climate now, it's not something that we have the luxury of acting on in the future. Once you incorporate that shorter-term vision of climate change, you find that livestock agriculture represents at least half of our carbon emissions, and if we're only focusing on fossil fuels emissions then we we can actually still run into catastrophic climate change so we need to it needs to be a multi-pronged strategy to address climate change and uh, diet is a major major part of that and that's something that has not been addressed by NGOs or or climate organizations in particular at all so so what a climatarian diet is is one that considers the carbon footprint of the types of meat that people choose to eat and also the quantities of those types of meat. And what emerges is a diet that is, has far less beef and lamb in it and 
because beef and lamb has a, have the largest carbon footprints of any of all the types of meat. We're very much focused on fossil fuels and changing, you know, policy in regard to that to combat climate change. But the issue is a lot more urgent, which is becoming very prevalent. And as a result of that, Fairfax Media has launched their project on combating climate change. And I'd like your response to their... They had a little article uh, earlier on in the week. What you can do with $100 this week to combat climate change. And one of the tips was to switch beef for chicken. Can you comment on that for us and, and how that could be the case? I think that's uh, that's a great idea for uh, for I guess for the ninety percent of the population that that eat meat. I think that because chicken has at least one seventh of the carbon footprint of beef, so I think that's really good from that perspective, from the climate perspective. I think it's a good idea, but it's obviously a very simplified mm. version of what we're trying to promote as well. Mm. So obviously, there's a lot a lot more diverse foods we can eat, and I think just saying swap chicken for beef is a pretty simple kind of thing and I think we'll be coming up with a lot of different meal ideas and climatarian uh, diet as a whole will have a lot more varied kind of meals. We really need to uh, steer this ship around so to speak and the only way we can do that is that you guys um, at Less Meat Less Heat be saying is these personal choices we need to change every day that's how we're going to get control over the situation. With the eating another kind of meat instead, why eat any meat at all? Because as I understand it, all plant-based diets, they use a hell of a lot less energy and, and carbon. And the United Nations said that the world must head towards yeah, transform a... to a to a full plant-based diet. So I suppose what we are thinking when we say less meat or types of meat is that we can't change overnight. We can't change people's habits overnight and it has to be a kind of gradual thing and I think we're taking a pragmatic approach so we're we're looking at the types of people who eat meat every day sometimes twice a day sometimes three times a day and saying look try and cut down or and or choose the types of meat that will be less devastating on climate so that that's kind of what where our target audience is the 90% who are meat eaters um, there's other organisations out there that are doing exactly what you're talking about, Vegetarians Victoria, other organisations are definitely on those on those lines saying let's eat a full plant-based diet or a vegan diet, which is great. And if and if they can get, you know, 30% of Australians to eat those diets, then it's amazing. But they're not going to, they're just not going to get everyone to eat those diets. So if we can do the most amount that we can, over the whole population, we're talking about everyone here, not just people that are open-minded and maybe, you know, if they're called greenies in inverted commas, if we can get those people on board, then all the better. Can you tell us about what, how you're facilitating your awareness? Is it just through social media or...? Well, when, when we actually, so right now we're sort of all hands on deck to actually build the full website, to actually build the smartphone apps that we plan to launch with. Um, so we plan to not just educate the public because there is a massive gap in education around the world, not just in Australia, in terms of the, the true carbon footprint of the different types of meat that people choose. So phase one is education, definitely education. And at the same time, we also want to engage people because education 
alone is not enough to drive lasting behavioural change. So we want to engage people through what we've coined the Climatarian Challenge, which is going to be a fun, a fun way of actually engaging with what a Climatarian diet looks like. So people will be able to sign up, um, download the smartphone app to their phone. Um, they can connect with their friends who are also going to be participating in the Climatarian Challenge. It's going to last for 30 days. You'll start with um, X amount of points, which will be representative of, your, of a carbon footprint that's compatible with a safe climate. And over the course of the month, each meal that you have, if it's meat or no meat, or you basically put in, okay, you select, okay, so I had lunch, and then what type of meat was in that lunch? It was chicken, was it big, large, small meat? Um, and then you put that in, and then it will basically deduct uh, an amount of points that's, um, that's, dir- that's proportionate to the carbon footprint of that meal that you had. Is a meat reduction going to be enough? Yes, it will. There's actually a number of uh, reports out there that show that a 50% reduction in livestock consumption around the world can actually reduce our adaptation costs of climate change by something extraordinary like 70%. So there's a lot of reports supporting our mission in terms of reducing meat consumption, specifically red meat. I'd say in about Three weeks or so, we'll have a um, another cowspiracy screening. It's going to be most likely central. Like so uh, check we, the website, check the website, <laughs> and check. Oh no, not the website. Uh, check Facebook, Facebook yeah, page. We post stage. we post everything on our Facebook page at this point because our website is just like a placeholder. It's just got very basic information. You can sign up and donate and. Uh, Contact us if you want to volunteer. We've also uh, got a crowdfunding campaign coming out uh, very, very soon. We're in the final stages of, I guess, editing what the app mock-ups and how they're going to look like and the final touches. So we're going to be launching that over the next couple of weeks on Chuffed, which is an Australian crowdfunding, uh, Australian-based crowdfunding platform. It's actually based in Collingwood, just around the corner. I'm Paul Marnie from Melbourne Pick Save, and also I run the Terrastendo website dealing with climate change and animal rights. Is it enough in your point of view for everyone just to eat less meat in our attempts at this time to curb the extremes of climate change? Well, they certainly have to do that. Uh, I guess your question's really asking, do we have to stop eating meat altogether? We certainly have to move away from beef production and and probably sheep meat production because uh, a key thing what I say is that and I quote James Hansen who was the former head of climate change at NASA Dr James Hansen who said that we won't get to 350 parts per million measure of CO2 in the atmosphere which is a regarded as a key threshold we won't achieve that without massive reforestation so it's all well and good to stop using fossil fuels, which is another essential measure, but we have to reforest. We have to get the forest back in order to draw down existing carbon from the atmosphere because I mentioned a figure of 350 parts per million. We're currently at about 400 parts per million. And before the Industrial Revolution, we were at about 280 parts per million CO2. So we have to draw down that carbon. Now, the only way to meaningfully reforest is to reclaim the land that's been cleared for cattle and sheep grazing so we have to stop eating those products in order to get that land back and so that's an absolutely critical thing and those animals are also very very large emitters of methane 
which is many, many times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So certainly as a start, we, well, we have to do lots and lots of things to overcome climate change and we have to do them urgently. Uh, a, a critical thing is to move away from, from ruminant animals as a food source. And certainly plant-based foods are still much better than uh, chicken and pork and, and others, but those, those animal food products are, much, as I mentioned, much closer to plant-based foods in terms of their emissions than, than our beef and, and sheep meat. Any ruminant animal is a, a no-no, really. Goats are the same. A lot of people do eat goats and they're another ruminant animal. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. We are chatting with Paul Marnie. Paul is a well-respected environmental and animal rights campaigner. He works hard at trying to open people's eyes up to the urgency with which we need to treat the climate change issue. Because if we don't, if we don't pull out all the stops to turn this ship around, because we now know that it is a human engineered issue that we can affect, then catastrophic conditions are inevitable for current and future generations. So why not do as much as we can so our kids and grandkids can survive? Paul simultaneously campaigns to open people's awareness to the horrific cruelty and often it is industrialised illegal uh, cruelty uh, we impose on other animals and the need to, in his words, we need to respect their right to exist without any need to fulfil the desires of humans. Paul, there was an article in Fairfax Papers on Monday titled How to Spend $100 and Help Combat Climate Change. Now, on that shopping list was Mm -hmm. a simple instruction to swap beef for chicken. And then Mm -hmm. there was a separate instruction recommending buying organic, sustainable foods. Mm -hmm. Can I Mm -hmm. have your comments on this, please? Well, there's no doubt chickens much less emissions intensive than beef. I've done a lot of work looking at the emissions intensity of different products and if people are not familiar with that term emissions intensity, it's just a measure of the kilograms of greenhouse gases per kilogram of end product. So if you purchase a kilogram of beef versus a kilogram of chicken, uh, you will be responsible or buying into far more emissions of greenhouse gases uh, with the beef than you would be with the chicken. So chicken and pork, for example, uh, are closer to plant-based products than beef in terms of their emissions. It's a very, very large difference in terms of beef and there's lots of different measures of it. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisation has estimated a global average, I think, emissions intensity of beef of about 67 kilograms of emissions per kilogram of product and uh, chicken, I don't have my figures in front of me and it varies by study, but chicken, it would be below 10 kilograms, so very significant difference. When it comes to the intensive farming, the factory farming of uh, pigs and chickens, though, they do. there seems to be a bit of, you know, greenwashing going on, I mean, due to the fact, yes, and you've, you know, confirmed it, that they do, they're a lot less energy intensive, Um for our, you know, fight against climate change. So, Yeah, I actually said emissions intensive. So I'm purely talking in terms of emissions. Now, yes, an issue with pork production and chicken production is there's an awful lot of of waste, which can pollute the environment. 
and that waste also emits greenhouse gases, largely through nitrous oxide and methane. But the figures I'm talking about, where I, I mentioned over 60 kilograms of greenhouse gas per kilogram of product for beef, and the comparison with chicken, which is less than 10 in some measures, they do allow for those those waste emissions as well. So after taking all those things into account, you've got a very, very big difference between the two the two uh, sources of product. Unfortunately, that's uh, they're, they're, they're all emissions intensive, but there's a very big difference in degree. Methane is, uh, the chemical code is CH4, so it's, it's carbon, a carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms, and nitrous oxide is, is nitrogen and oxide. And they, there's a measure called global warming potential where you can assess the potency of different greenhouse gases in terms, uh, compared to carbon dioxide. And the uh, global warming potential tells you how a different compound compares to carbon dioxide. Now, over a 100-year time horizon, the potency of methane is, according to the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change now, is about 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, whereas nitrous oxide is closer to 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So if you have manure releasing nitrous oxide, which it does, then that every kilogram of nitrous oxide that's released is around 298 or 268, depending on how you measure it, but around that sort of multiple of CO2 in terms of its potency. A critical thing with methane, I should just mention quickly, it's much more potent over a 20, if you measure it over a 20-year time horizon because it, it breaks down in the atmosphere much more quickly than some of the other gases. And it's, it's largely broken down within about 12 years. So the 100-year time frame does uh, dilute its impact. If you bring it back to 20, according to the IPCC, it's 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide, mm. allowing for uh, feedbacks, climate carbon feedbacks. And uh, if you allow for climate carbon feedbacks, uh, with with methane over a 100-year time frame, it's about 34 times more potent than CO2. Sorry to bombard you with the figures there, no, but they're, no, they're, they're, that's just if anybody's interested, they're, they're some of the specifics. So basically, if you take climate change as a completely separate issue as to, you know, whether we should be eating meat or not, you know, for other right. reasons, uh, yeah. purely with the climate change debate, then... Yeah. It, it's kind of, I guess, multi-pronged, but it, yeah, we all, the whole population needs to be eating less meat, like the guys at Less Meat, Less Heat, they're really, their take on it is let's get everyone, the majority of the population, and um, just to eat less meat for less heat, a very simple message there. I'm yeah. just wondering, though, if we then encourage the intensive farming side of things, is that just going to defeat the purpose, or is it, I guess it, it's such a large difference, the beef consumption compared to the intensive farming production anyway yeah yeah, yeah. Quite one one really big problem with with the intensive farming you do have to feed the animals obviously and they they eat huge amounts so if, for example soybeans a lot of the the destruction in the amazon for soy production is is is, is for is to feed pigs and uh, and other animals. Uh, there's around 500 million pigs just in China, and a huge amount of the exports of soy from from South America go to China to feed those pigs. Now, animal food production is inherently inefficient because 
you are feeding nutritious plant foods to an animal and that animal has to grow and maintain itself. So it's obviously using a lot of the nutrients from that food. So, so they are lost. They are lost in that process. It's much more efficient to feed, feed the uh, grain and other foods to people directly. There was an interesting study a little while back from the University of Minnesota which said that if we did move to a plant-based diet, we have the capacity to feed an additional 4 billion people. Now, there's currently estimated to be about 800 million people undernourished in the world, so there's a fairly straightforward solution to that problem. And they said that if we took that approach also, it would reduce climate change mitigation costs by about 80 percent, 80%. That's largely because of the drawdown, the ability to draw down carbon, which I mentioned earlier. We'd, we'd reclaim all that forest and be able to draw down carbon. So these are huge benefits of going to a, a plant-based diet compared to a mixed diet. So certainly there are big, big problems in producing food from animals and we would be far better off if we, if we moved away from that altogether. It's just that in relative terms, beef in particular is, is the really bad one. So that would have the biggest impact early on okay. if, we, you know, if we're going to take some steps. So we've heard the very clinical facts about combating climate change when it comes to personal consumption but only in the context of if you still eat meat. I mean, we all know that a plant-based diet far outweighs the environmental friendliness of any mixed diet or one that is based on animal agriculture. It's great to hear people are being mindful of the environmental impacts of their personal choices when it comes to consumerism every day, but let's just hope that as Will Tuttle terms the circles of compassion, that that environment that they realise they're impacting includes the environment of the actual animals that they're affecting and the lives that they have. Many animal rights and environmental organisations have exposed the conditions that are inside chicken agribusiness, the egg lane factories and the the conditions that broiler chickens are brought up in. Um, for example, in egg-laying facilities, the male chicks are macerated or gassed um, at less than a day old. And also the in broiler chicken farms, the chickens have been bred to grow so quickly that their bodies are so big, you know, they, they grow them for efficiency so they get bigger bigger breasts because they sell well and that's what everyone wants so they can barely walk these chickens and we all know that uh, the slaughter process even though it is called humane slaughter there is no such thing there's varying degrees of inhumaneness when it comes to slaughter hi this is liz Daly from melbourne chicken save melbourne chicken save wants consumers to know the real truth behind the hell that chickens endure for eggs and meat production Chickens are inquisitive, intelligent social creatures who are forced to live in hell for those industries. Billions of chickens worldwide endure a life of pain, discomfort, madness, sorrow, sickness and torture, all for people's taste buds. You have to ask yourself when you consider all the facts, is it really worth it? Do you want to be part of that cruelty or part of the compassion? 
Melbourne Chicken Save approaches the public through rallies, Facebook, other social media, and we hope to help people make kind choices in their food purchasing. We have uh, independent media in Melbourne. We are lucky to have 3CR and Freedom of Species as an important voice for animals on 3CR. Freedom of Species is a vital player in raising awareness about a broad range of animal issues, educating the public, supporting animal rights and animal rights advocates. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. Time for some news that relates to uh, the topic of chicken farming. Titled Baida Busted, Workers' Conditions Akin to Slavery. Uh, Baida is a poultry uh, corporation. A union worker says foreign workers at Baida Poultry's processing plant in Tamworth are subjected to conditions akin to slavery. The Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union has slammed the industry for its shameful exploitation of international employees. The rebuke comes after a scathing report found workers at Baida's three New South Wales processing sites, including Tamworth, were not being paid for their lawful entitlements. It found Baida, which supplies the Lilydale Select and Steggles brands to outlets such as Coles and Woolworths, uses six main contractors to source workers to fill labour shortages. The temporary employees, who mostly arrive on 417 working holiday visas from Taiwan, Hong Kong and China, are frequently not afforded the same protections as Australians. The inquiry found evidence of significant underpayment, extremely long hours of work, overcrowded and unsafe worker accommodations. Ombudsman Natalie James said Baida had refused to allow inspectors access to its factories to observe work practices and talk to employees about their conditions. There were also cases where labour hire companies in both the white and red meat processing industries withheld pay altogether. That was from the Northern Daily Leader. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. I will now read a great article that was in the Sacramento Bee written by Ray Majedwesh. Uh, who is writing his thesis on the history and management of kangaroos in Australia. Kangaroos are in trouble and Californians can help. Government data found kangaroos are in serious long-term decline in New South Wales. Kangaroo industry users funds from Australian government to lobby California lawmakers to remove impediments to kangaroo parts trade. Right now... California's government is being lobbied to repeal a decades-old ban on kangaroo parts. My government is telling your government that kangaroos are plentiful pests and that the industry is well-regulated and sustainable. This could be the greatest wildlife swindle in scientific history, says Ray. Australia has the world's worst mammal extinction rate, One-third of global mammal extinctions in the last 400 years occurred in Australia. 
90 million kangaroos and their joeys were killed by the commercial kangaroo killing industry between 1975 and 2011, with millions more shot every year since. In 2011, I, meaning Ray, reviewed government data finding that kangaroos are in serious long-term decline in New South Wales. He submitted exhaustive scientific evidence detailing critical errors in government population surveys, flaws in the harvest model, systematic inflation of kangaroo numbers and over-allocation of quotas. Government population estimates since then show increases that are biologically impossible, ensuring that millions of kangaroos continue to be shot annually from ever-shrinking populations. It's an industrial-scale slaughter of an international icon. Ray's concerns, he says, were dismissed as activism, despite his expertise in flora and fauna survey and wildlife management. No one has attempted to answer any of his questions. I quote, Our national coat of arms and one dollar coin bear their image, but in Australia, kangaroos have been mythologised as a nuisance. Australians have been subjected to a strategic, long-running and industry-driven PR campaign that has been generally accepted, that shooting and eating kangaroo is good for us and good for the environment. The notion of a kangaroo population surplus is firmly embedded. Instead of a decline, our unquestioning media report plagues. Our cooks recommend recipes. The kangaroo industry uses the Australian government to lobby California lawmakers to remove impediments to the kangaroo trade. Meanwhile, Adidas Adidas has dropped kangaroo leather from its soccer shoes out of concern for animal welfare and Russia refuses our kangaroo meat for food safety reasons. Governor Jerry Brown is among those being lobbied in California. He may prove the kangaroo's strongest ally. In 2007, when the California Supreme Court unanimously upheld the state's kangaroo trade ban, then Attorney General Brown likened the kangaroo trade to the ivory trade and stated, when you create a market for certain animal skins, then you encourage people to kill that animal species. Three words, Governor Brown. That was written by Ray Majadwesh, a consulting ecologist, He's writing his thesis on the history and management of kangaroos in Australia. And that was written again in the Sacramento Bee. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. That wraps up the show for this week, so thank you so much for tuning in and for your support. I'd like to thank all the guests today and the musician Melody Moon. If you'd like to contact us, please do. We'd love to hear from you at info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter and the website. Have a great week. Taking us out is another tune by Melody Moon called Bridges.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.